This week on the Eldritch Lorecast. The MCDM RPG, as it is apparently officially titled. For it to have hit 2 million in under 24 hours is mind-boggling. A Kickstarter is not a pre-order. The, the mods shut down any conversation about Ben Burn. <laughs> really? <laughs> We got to talk about naming conventions. I, for a very long time, have been keeping a list of <laughs> Wizards of the Coast adventure names and complaints about them. Enchanting Emporiums, now on Kickstarter if you want to play 5e. The quest into the Infinite Staircase, uh, with his, which is an anthology. These sort of classic old tournament adventures fell way out of fashion. Maybe now's the time to bring them back. Is it really the time to bring them back? I don't think I've seen anything that indicates to me that it's the time to bring them back is the thing. A big cup of all of that and more right now. Okay, all right, gonna get my knee around the microphone. Hello everybody and welcome to the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one podcast in this and all the realms. I'm Dale Kingsmill and I'm here as always with James Hake, Sean Merwin and Ben Byrne. Benjamin, I am asking you a question that I'm coming up with very ahead of time. It's what is your favorite color? Blue. Blue. Yellow. (laughs) I have a feeling the question is something like Kickstarters and, and such on products. What is the most that you have ever spent? You don't have to tell us the amount, but what is it that you purchased with your hard earned money you you have dollars in, in australia right and dollar and i had a whole conversation with an uber driver where he <laughs> insisted that australia didn't use dollar or no he insisted that we used american dollars and that dollar always meant u.s yes. dollars yes Whoa. yes i do remember that because i think there are some countries that do just use u.s dollars right i think that's maybe i know where one coming from yeah, me, me too. That that's for sure. Um, uh, uh, the most I have ever spent uh, on a Kickstarter. I do this regularly. Uh, it's bad, and it's actually not on tabletop RPG Kickstarters. It's on um, typically board game Kickstarters because I'm a miniatures fiend. That's what my. That's where. That's where I get my juice from. That's what I love. I love my miniatures. Oh boy, love the miniatures. Just love the little man on the table. Anyway, um. Uh, so I regularly spend in excess of uh, hundreds of dollars. <laughs> ben is broken. Yes, that is true. Um, on uh, most recently, Mythic Battles Ragnarok uh, just arrived, which I'm very excited about to use those. Mi- I'm never going to play the board game, but I'm really excited to use those miniatures for a campaign of uh, the Saga of the Seasons from Valakan Clans. Um, and let me tell you, the, the, the Fenrir miniature is beautiful. Um, Dale, I have to ask you this, though. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but the miniature Fenrir has a sword like driven through his um, snout. It is not technically mythologically accurate. Fenrir is killed because uh, what's his face? What's his name? The son of the son of Odin, not Thor. He uh, he grabs. See? Uh, no, he. No. Gra- <laughs> I'll know it if I hear it. Uh, I read this. I read this recently, but the, they're all, all the names are melting together. I should know. Come on now. Um, Not he, Balder, he grabs- surely. No, 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 he's dead. Um, <laughs> no, he- <laughs> no, no. T gets his hand Who bitten off it? by Fenrir. Who is it? Vidar. It might be Vida. It might be Vida. Um, Vali. Uh, no, it'll be Vida. It'll be Vida of those Loki. two. Okay. <laughs> 
Heimdall. Welcome to our podcast where we list all the sons of Odin and some other people. <laughs> um, he, he basically grabs each jaw, bottom jaw, upper jaw, and tears Fenrir in half, um, which is pretty sick. I think slightly sicker than a sword through the snout. But the snout I, it is cool too. I mean, maybe he did get a sword through the snout, but that's not how he died. Maybe. Maybe. Um, what, what about you, Dale? Do you tend to spend big on, on Kickstarters? Oh, no. Or even just like a collector's edition product or something. This is, I, I am, I am, I call myself Silas Mana on the regular. I, I am a miser. I keep my money. I count my money. And I, I really don't tend to spend very often. But when I do spend, I spend big, but um, rarely on Kickstarters. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly conservative with my crowdfunding. Uh, I am I am the crowd element of the crowdfunding, <laughs> as it were. I had this conversation recently with a friend of mine who was like, why do you spend so much money? You, you could get a deposit for a house. I was like, no, I can't. No, I can't. If I had any hope of getting a deposit for a house, maybe I would spend maybe less I'd money. <laughs> but uh, because that is not a possibility, uh, then screw it. I may as well be happy uh, in my poverty. Uh, James Hake, what about yourself? I went to look at my list of pledges and I was surprised. I have never spent more than $125 on a Kickstarter, uh, which looking at some of the Kickstarters I've backed shows an incredible amount of restraint on my part. Um, <laughs> I So number two is Avatar Legends, which I think is the one I care most about. Uh, I've spent about 115 on that. Great game. Um, but the other one at a 100 British pounds, which is about 125 US dollars, is Break, two exclamation points, a TTRPG inspired by fantasy video games and anime, uh, which I keep getting updates for. I don't think, uh, I don't know if it's out yet. Uh, I kind of supported it on a, a love of its ethos. And uh, then I got distracted by, by D&D which maybe says a lot about the way that TTRPGs go. Mm, that's fair. Uh, Sean Moon, what about your fine self? When James said break, I thought it was going to be like Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo, the role-playing <laughs> game. And I was like, where can I get myself some of that? <laughs> but uh, I, my level of miserliness makes Dale look like a drunken sailor on leave. Uh, so... Aside from Ghostfire Gaming, uh, I I back very few Kickstarters. Uh, I will buy a lot of products, but the one I've backed that I spent the most on was uh, the Shadow of the Weird Wizard, the game from right. Rob Schwab. Uh, yeah, so that that that's out there, waiting waiting patiently. What I noticed though, as I was looking through the list of things I have kickstarted, is Boy, nobody fulfills theirs on time. And and that's okay. It's I, I don't but I see some of the complaints from from customers about like being like uh, two weeks overdue. And I'm like right. there are like twenty-five I'm looking at right now that were like two years overdue and still haven't fulfilled. And, right. and that's okay. That's okay. I'm okay with that. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's a tricky business as as folk say. Uh Kickstarter is not a pre-order. Um, mm. In theory, um, uh, it is because you believe in the in the project. Mm. Um, I've looked up some answers. So it was Vida, um, uh, and there are different versions. So it, it seems like in the Voluspa, 
um, we're expecting Vida to drive a sword through the heart of Fenrir, avenging his father. But uh, here in Gilfaginning, apparently uh, Odin's son Vida will move forward and kick one foot into the lower jaw of the wolf. This foot will bear a legendary shoe for which the material has been collected throughout all of time. With one hand, Vida will take hold of the wolf's upper jaw and tear apart his mouth, killing Fenrir. So there you go. Yeah, speaking of, of, of crowdfunders that are doing extremely well, we don't we don't tend to talk about uh, crowdfunding campaigns that are in flight on the Lorecast unless it's a Ghostfire one because, full disclosure, this podcast is funded by Ghostfire Gaming. Um, Enchanting Emporiums, now on Kickstarter if you want to play 5e. Um, but this is not just record-breaking. The MCDM... Uh, uh, RPG, as it is apparently officially titled, um, uh, is breaking records on like the second day of its um, uh, crowdfunding. It, it is on the first uh, when day. I last checked on the mm-hmm. first day for that record. Yeah, when I last checked, I actually last checked yesterday, so I don't know if anybody's going to update me on this, but it was on two point eight million. Um, and for context, the biggest tabletop RPG Kickstarter's before that. Uh, to my understanding, uh, is Crooked Moon, which was earlier this year at four million, and Ryoko's Guide, um, which was three point three million um, total funding, which is still huge for those projects. But for the MCDM to be at uh, probably over three million by this point, um, by its third or fourth day, is uh, really cool. It's still not cracked two point nine. Uh, as of this recording, but okay. f- for it to have hit two million in under twenty four hours is mind boggling, and like huge props to them. Like dog on, it is a backer kit campaign, not a Kickstarter campaign. So if you go to Kickstarter, you won't find it. I also feel like I, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but the last I knew, the name is still not decided. Uh, it, I don't believe it's going to be called MCDM RPG. Uh, I, they could. <laughs> that is correct. I joked at Matt on Twitter about this, and he said we're it named TBA. I I wonder though if they might um, Tales of the Valiant themselves if they give it a a more proper name now, right? Like we still refer to Tales of the Valiant as Black Flag, um, and Tales of the Valiant feels like uh, it has less kind of um seo recognition than putting black flag into a uh, well i will say i think the difference there is that if people do continue to call it mcdm rpg after they've released it won't matter (laughs) like it'll still (laughs) Mm -hmm. lead them to the same place it'll still be good for seo it'll still you know uh, translate into conversions so i think that they're they're in a pretty good place even if it is odd to have not picked a name yet but I mean, I got to say, so I, I recently uh, ran a Q&A for the MCDM patrons uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, just uh, translating their questions to uh, Matt and Intracasso uh, <laughs> regarding the game and the design and where we are. And the number of questions that were, what's the game going to be called? I got to the <laughs> point where I was keeping track of them and I was coming up with a fake name for each time someone asked the question. I was going to genuinely be like, oh, I can feel this. The game's name is <laughs> Lemon Zest Zero. Like, <laughs> um, so the zero calorie is, RPG. LZ Zero for short. Yeah, my point is that I should be allowed to name the game. <laughs> I, I think, Matt, if you're listening, you should let Dale name the game. Just let her do it. Mm-hmm. Just let you her know, do it. Just as a bit. 
And you've you got to commit to the bit. <laughs> Actually, worth mentioning as well that during that Q and A, you got to mention Ben, you, you and your hatred for the negotiation oh, really? systems. Uh. Not for me. Andrew Casso brought it up. You, you've made your impression on the MCDM community. So I, I was uh, my flight from Philadelphia back to LA. I was on the same flight as James Intracasso. I didn't see him, but he spotted me. I must have walked uh, past his chair. Um, and so he messaged me on Twitter, which I didn't get until I turned my phone back on at the end of the flight. Um, and let me just say, I, I was thrilled to bits that I'm on speaking terms with James Intracasso. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I said to him, I would have offered uh, to, to grab a coffee, but I had to run to my next flight to get flown to Sydney. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that I've made an impact. Uh, I've heard that negotiations are still uh, being included as part of the system. Have you, Dale, been able or has anybody here been able to play the system since uh, our run through at Pax Oz or, or Sean playing it at uh, Game Hulk on? No, not yet. Uh, although Roman has been uh, kindly keeping me in the loop on other playtests that are happening. I've just been slammed with other stuff. So uh, not at this point, unfortunately. Fair enough. I do want to say as well, I've been meaning to say this, and I don't know whether this is going to come off as a bit gauche. I do apologize. Our, our comment section on that episode of the Lawcast led me to believe I went maybe a little too far with what was intended to be uh, light ribbing. You should at, have seen uh, the MCDM Discord. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. They, I, it, they took it well, I assume. Look, was never. I, I I can't stand negotiations. I stand by the fact that I don't think that's a, a fun system in the version that I played at PAX Australia. But I apologise if um I went overboard with the uh, the, the tone at which yeah. I took to. Yeah. me. You should see what their three million dollar uh, stretch goal is, Ben. It's it's not good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. No. I'm sure they're uh they're they're wiping away their tears at what I said about negotiations with their. <laughs> Uh, millions of dollars. <laughs> I am not in the slightest surprised at the success of this Kickstarter. Uh, sorry, I say Kickstarter again of this crowdfunder uh, campaign, crowdfunding campaign. Um, I don't know that I would have predicted close to three million in three or four days necessarily, but I'm always really bad at predicting numbers. Um, but I remember when they announced that they were going to Kickstarter in December. There was some discussion. We might have even had that on the lawcast. I can't remember. But some discussion of like, oh, that's that's interesting. That's typically not a great time to go to Kickstarter because people have other concerns. Uh, not only did that not seem to hurt them in the slightest, um, but that, you know, it, it, it hasn't even slowed them down, it seems, which is great. Well, I actually have uh, some answers regarding that. Uh, so it sounds like basically the way that things lined up with um, – final sort of uh, shippings for Flea Mortals and then the release of uh, they did an updated Illrigger. So they had a lot of uh, MCDM releases kind of coming up in the lead up to December. And right. so even though December is typically not the time you want to go for, the idea of waiting a month and letting everything cool down and losing that momentum, it, the trade-off ended up being um, that they wanted to to keep that sort of momentum of of being in the forefront of people's minds and, and people going, hey, I just got this really cool book from them. Yeah, I'll go and, you know, back yeah, to the Yeah, that makes thing. sense. That makes sense. The talent in particular seemed to make a big splash when it hit um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Tabletop RPG Twitter in particular. 
Yeah, I, I would say that all of MCDM's classes, I think with the exception of the Illrigger, have filled in a very sort of open niche in 5e design, right? Beast Beastmaster, what was it called? The Beastheart. Beastheart, James Intercasso's Beastheart uh, fills the oft maligned Beastmaster role. Uh, the, the, the talent is obvious. People seem to love psionics and there is just really nothing for it coming out of wizards other than a few, I don't know, uh, un, unspecial subclasses. Is that too mean? You know, there's, there's nothing particularly swanky about them. They exist. Uh, yeah, I do want to check out the Ulrigger. It seems pretty neat, but I don't think there are many people clamoring to play an evil paladin. Don't, don't hear that online very often. Sure. Um, uh, and, and then just worth mentioning, I suppose, you know, there, there's been analysis done on this on Twitter already, people breaking down kind of the MCDM model, you know, um, what has uh, led to this astronomical success. And obviously it's no single thing, but just, you know, a combination of presence, um, uh, a timing, um, but also fantastic work, which builds up an incredibly strong reputation um, in the industry where folks, uh, it's not just, um, it, it's the fact that if somebody works on an MCDM product, if somebody's worked on Arcadia or worked on Flea Mortals, they are clambering to talk about it uh, on social media, mm-hmm. uh, which I think, you know, that is... Um, that is a, a level of um, I don't even know what to call it because I'm I, I don't I'm not saying this cynically right like I'm saying this like genuinely they've built up such a great reputation that that that's something you can't buy you know that that sort of reputation so uh, this has been as Matt said in a recent video not just eight years in the making but you know uh, uh, long before that in the making so uh, congratulations to them. Huge congrats. And I feel like I, yeah, I feel sure. like I'm becoming like the MCDM spokesperson today, but it's just because I'm excited. Um, no, but that, that is uh, Pathfinder and MCDM. Those are the two roles in mythology. Those are the roles. That and contract. Uh, and contract <laughs> law, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean, no, genuinely, it is one of my greatest prides that both you uh, when bringing me onto this podcast and Matt when bringing me on to do the Q&A. Both of you said, we need someone who's not going to just be nice, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which, you know, make of that what you will. Um, But no, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's such a combination of things. I I think very few people are in the position to begin with um, that Matt was in in order to launch this thing, like MCDM as a whole, Um, Mm. because it, it came down to you know, all these years of industry experience, not only in tabletop RPGs, but also in video games. He, he, you know, when he, you know, makes his own products, he knows artists, he knows writers, he knows, you know, all these people that he can bring in and get excited about a thing. And I think that that is also a big, a big key element is that they make stuff that they're excited to make. And mm. it, they, they're less concerned with, you know, market trends, which is cool because it means, you know, I remember when they were first showing the art for the talent um, I remember Matt saying, look, you're going to look at this art and you're going to know instantly whether this is something you think is cool or whether it's something you're not interested in, in at all. Sure. And both of those things are fine, but yeah. they just pick a direction and they go with it. And I think that that um, really works in in a way because even though you're maybe not getting 
the broadest audience that you could possibly get, you're getting a really passionate audience um, and that it, it makes that, a uh, massive That's difference. something that we've talked about at Ghostfire, right, is the idea of um, broad audience versus engaged audience and, and what, um, you know, uh, uh, can lead to a more successful product, you know, or a more successful um, project um, uh, in terms of, like, the audience's fanaticism for that thing. And, look, I'll be honest, I don't think the – from having played it and I, I – there's things that the MCDM role-playing game, from what I know about it, do that I really like. I really like the idea that your resources continually kind of recharge and spend and recharge and spend. I like that gameplay loop because even playing Boulder's Gate, I feel frustrated at like getting into a fight that's a little bit more difficult than I thought it would be. And the fight's not hard. But now I've got to take a long rest, right? Like that's a, a, a frustrating um, uh, uh, gameplay loop sometimes. Um, that being said, how specific the MCDM RPG seems to me in what they're trying to accomplish, a heroic fantasy, uh, uh, power fantasy in some capacity, is not what I'm looking for in my like every week um, kind of D&D or tabletop RPG game. I think it's the sort of game I definitely want to play a campaign in for like maybe two to six months, but will inevitably return to, um, you know, something like Grim Hollow, which is much more my wheelhouse. All right. of that to say, I agree with what you're saying and 100, 100% respect the fact that they know what they're making and they are making that thing, you know, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is very evidenced. In Worth it. noting the other thing that Ghostfire and MCDM as companies have in common <laughs> that they both pay their writers quite well <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah um on the topic of audiences engaged audiences highly evangelical audiences it's the the thing that really impresses me about mcdm is how um how well moderated their community is you know i'm not part of the mm. mcdm discord i don't see their community moderation in action but i can see the knock-on effect as it spills into other communities right i've been deeply involved in the critical role community as a professional and as a fan for many many years and as much as i love that show as much as i love the creatives involved in it that community has some problems when it comes to people disliking the thing that they like um and you know i've seen that a little bit in mcdm but i don't see people kind of going a hunting for opinions that will make them mad and that will you know right. kind of incite their righteous fury they don't need In to go fact, looking. The, the mods shut down <laughs> any conversation about Ben Burn. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, ben that makes word. it sound so much worse than it was. Everyone was actually being fair. I, I think it's funny to make it sound really bad, but <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> but the mods did rescue you. <laughs> Ooh, thank you. Thank you, MCDM mods. Persona non grata in the MCDM community, Ben Burn. <laughs> <laughs> cool, 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 cool. We just stay out of that Discord, uh, especially because of the way that Discord like announces your arrival when you when you fall into a a Discord. That would be that would be fun to watch. I I feel. Uh, Wizards of the Coast went went through this uh, a while back when they had DDI back fourth edition days. They realized what they were doing was they were creating forums to host people that were just bashing them and and. It just doesn't make any sense to to carry the weight of the hate for you around. So it it mm. makes sense for a company to to do that. So you know, good on them. Good on them for mm. 
cultivating the the kind of audience that that they need to to survive. Because mm. it really it's like people are gonna hate you no matter what. <laughs> they can do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like the MCDM Discord. Um, <laughs> in in my case. Um, no, but genuinely, uh, congratulations to them. I'll be very fascinated uh, to see uh, where this ends up uh, at what point. Also worth mentioning that you all brought up uh, Kickstarter as a, a or crowdfunding as not pre-ordering, uh, and yeah. I think that mm-hmm. is very much the philosophy that we're encouraging here with the MCDM game uh, crowdfunding is, is you're funding the process of making the game uh, mm-hmm. more than anything else. So, yeah. yeah. And if yeah. you do that, if you are going to do that, then you do need to do what Matt and James do, which is talk through the process because people are paying as much to see the process as they are paying for the final product. So yeah, in that absolutely. sense, it, they, they do a great job. If you are using that platform as just a sales uh, sales channel, then you sort of have less ability to do that because a lot of times the game has already been designed. Do you, Dale, do you know when the, the backer kit finishes? It's a month after, so it'll be probably the, the 2nd of January-ish. January 5th. Oh, okay. There we go. Thank you. January 5th, yep. I'm putting that uh, in the back of my mind, uh, but maybe in the forefront of yours. I'm not sure. Anyway, speaking of things uh, in the forefront of our mind uh, and shifts within the tabletop RPG industry... PAX Unplugged. There was a 50 years of D&D adventures panel uh, that occurred at PAX Unplugged. Uh, I was at it. It was much like it was on the stream um, uh, to be there in person. Uh, But they talked a couple of things, uh, including descent into the lost caverns of uh, Sarge Khanth was the way that uh, I believe Chris Perkins effortlessly pronounced it. Uh, or it might have been Jeremy Crawford, I can't quite remember. Uh, Vecna, Eye of Ruin, uh, and Quests from the Infinite Staircase, these three uh, book releases from next year that are not explicitly tied uh, to the new rules release uh, of next year. Um, uh, Descent into the Lost Caverns of Saj Khanth specifically being interesting because it is a one-shot uh, that is going that is designed to be played at public uh, events such as uh, conventions with its own scoring system. Um, uh, this feels like, some, is this something relatively new, like from back in the hobby that's being brought back for next year? Absolutely. They used to have these one shots uh, at conventions where you would come and either as an individual or usually as a team, sit down and play and there would be a scoring system based on how far you got through the adventure. Other uh, scoring opportunities were there. And then sometimes there would be different rounds. So if you won the first round, you would move to the second round. A lot of the old adventures that you have heard of or maybe even played from the past, Tomb of Horrors and and uh, White Plume Mountain and, and many of those were initially those convention tournament adventures that they then published uh, as as a uh, as a print product. So yeah, they're they're bringing this back. It'll be interesting to see how it's accepted. There was a time when these this was all you played at conventions, and then the idea of a living campaign where you could actually make your own character rather than playing a pre-generated character uh, became the, all the rage for obvious reasons, because I want to keep playing this character that I made, not some pre-gen. Mm-hmm. 
And and these sort of classic old tournament adventures fell way, way out of fashion. And so maybe now's the time to bring them back and, and see how it goes. Is it really the time to bring them back? I don't think I've seen anything that indicates to me that it's the time to bring them back is the thing. That's why that's why this surprised me. I think it sounds fun. And that's why it's the time. I mean, it does sound fun. <laughs> Quick vox pop of the lore cast. And I was going to ask this when we recorded our, our episode just before. But uh, I'm kind of curious because I think James and I spoke about this at, at PAX Unplugged. Uh, Dale, do you enjoy playing games at conventions? I do, but I want to clarify that I enjoy playing games outside of conventions more than at conventions. I like playing games at conventions because that's the kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a social, I don't love like wandering around and shopping at a convention. So I I look for those things like panels or, or games or yeah. Um, I like playing games with my friends, uh, and that can be at conventions. There are a lot of friends of mine who are, you know, all spread across the world in the states, um, and I enjoy having a, a, a couple of of strangers uh, in the game and and people who I've only met online. Like when we played the MCDM RPG at Pax Oz, and Roman was DMing for us. I mean, that was like playing with a friend because we we know of Roman from the the lorecast chat and twitter and from uh past pax experiences but if i'm just going to sit down and play with a group of total strangers uh i would probably rather be doing something else on the other hand i once sat down to play a, a convention game and was playing with matt baum but i didn't know who he was at the time and now oh. i love his videos <laughs> that's awesome i and this might be a slightly different priority for me uh, being in the the industry, but typically when I'm at a convention, you know, there's, uh, I, I have uh, an intense FOMO sometimes of like, oh, I want to go have lunch with this person or I want to go see that person or I, I'm getting messages at this point and want to move over here or I just want to be mobile. And so when I play games at conventions, generally I, I'd rather do it over like a, a two hour kind of dip in, dip out rather than something that goes for too long because I start to get antsy feet and want to get up and kind of move around. Um, and uh, the other thing is that my experience, like I played Call of Cthulhu at PAX Oz a couple of years ago, and I just don't think it was a great introduction to that game specifically. I hunted down Call of Cthulhu because I was like, oh, I'm at a convention. I haven't played this game before. I want to try it out. Mm. But the convention floor just I don't think lends itself especially to a newcomer to the atmosphere that Call of Cthulhu uh, is trying to inherently capture and it kind of became fifth edition with new rules uh, in in terms of atmosphere. Let me ask you this question one time and also specifically Sean because I know that Sean has run lots of times at conventions and also outside of conventions. What different like how different is the is the process of running a game at a convention and and like how do you prep for that like i i feel like you understand the question i'm actually asking my words aren't asking it but you get it like the the difference between running a convention game and running a home game in relation to what you're saying right like the the scenario doesn't lend itself to the same vibes so how do you accommodate for that you know, uh, w- what's interesting, uh, and I do want to hear Sean's answer on this because, uh, you know, when I was a, a, a hired GM, I had a lot of experience running convention games, but I suspect that it pales in comparison to what Sean has done. Um, but 
it, it's interesting that because I wasn't thinking in terms of running games. If I'm running a game at a convention, I get less of that antsy feat because I'm there for the purpose of running the, pardon me, of running the game. But also when I've run games at conventions, I'm not running Dark Fantasy. I, I've never run Grim Hollow at a convention yet. But generally when I'm running a convention game, it's Agents of the Empire uh, or Ethereal Expanse or it's Forgotten Realms. And so the atmosphere is light and bouncy and like, oh, there's danger. You better, you better get on this thing quick. But it's not trying to bring an atmosphere down here and be like, uh, before you, you see nothing but the cold void staring back at you through while no one can hear you because the, the convention floor is kind of uh, caving in on you. Um, and so I, I, I don't know how I would approach a Grim Hollow game on a convention floor, but I suspect it wouldn't be a slow horror. It would be something like, uh, you know, a, a, a monster is attacking a town and you've got to figure out how to, how to escape whilst that attack is ongoing. Uh, I love them. I hate them. I everywhere in between. <laughs> Uh, uh, there are so many different factors that go into this, right? I love running convention games uh, because I meet so many different people and I meet so many mm-hmm. different play styles and it taxes my, in a good way, you know, challenges my skill as a storyteller, as a game master, as a designer, as everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I love playing. Uh, it's exhausting, but I love playing as well especially playing new games, learning new games is for the best way for me to, I don't want to watch people play. I want to play and have an expert teach me. Uh, When I started running convention games, it was for a a living campaign, an organized play campaign, where it was the greatest community of gamers I've ever seen. Everyone was playing the same adventures. Everyone brought their own characters of their own making to this. So every table was different, yet everyone got a chance to experience the same overarching story, but come at it in different ways. So I learned so much about storytelling and player types and, and all of those things. Um, I So that's one thing. I also love sitting down with pre-generated characters at a very specific feel of an event to give players something that they may never have done before we are going to play all bards and we're going to see how much fun we have with that we are going to play a very horror centric game much more than you might get at your home game with these very specific characters for this very specific reason when i ran um the aurora uh stuff at game Holcon, it was mm. here's the pre-generated characters see how they're built the players that were interested in the story were interested in the story of Aurora. The players that were interested in mechanics were like, okay, let me reverse engineer how you built this character. Oh, I see. There are no species in this. We are Everything is built by hand. Oh, cool. What does this mean? What does that mean? And we got to discuss that a little bit. Uh, so there are, is it hard to do? It's very hard to do. Uh, is it worth it? For me, it was definitely worth it. And I would not give those 20-some years back. Uh, and I will be going to conventions again this year and doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I just, uh, the, the reason to take that little detour is I think, James, you were the one asking the question as to whether, um, sorry, I'll bring the name up in front of me, the Descent into the Lost Caverns of uh, Sarge Kanth um, is something that that kind of the, the community are crying out for. Um, and I think it, 
uh, honestly, I, I, yeah, I don't think that I'll be going and, and playing the Legends of the Descent into the the cave, the Saj Kant adventure. We got to talk about naming conventions. I, for a very long time, have been keeping a list <laughs> of Wizards of the Coast adventure names and complaints about them because I feel like we we're so close to good things all the time, and it's always a bad name. So okay. I think that there needs to be like an action noun and descent feels like it should, you know, you're descending. Okay, sure. Oh, but you're not. Some, okay. Yeah. But it's, I'm talking about like the types of words we're using broadly because it's like, yes, an actionable noun. That's great. Siege, right? Heist. These are good words. Dragon heist is a great name. It's just unfortunate that it doesn't describe what was happening, but it's a great name because you get a fantasy word, but a word that they recognize. All right. So Sarge can't doesn't work because it's a fantasy word, but it's also a word that no one knows. It's made up. It doesn't mean anything, but dragon, unicorn, spells, magic, any of these words, great words. Actionable nouns that have a little oomph to them, great words. Well, given that Descent into the Lost Caverns of Sojkanth is based off of the D&D adventure Lost Caverns of Sojkanth, it seems very clear what they're trying to inspire with this name, which is people who love Lost Caverns of Sojkanth. And that's How why many the Soge Camp in that category <laughs> and, are there. And and we're gonna take it one step further. There is also an adventure called Descent into the Depths of the Earth. So this is a mashing mm-hmm. of those two things. Descent into the right. Lost Well, I'm against it. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it is. And you are you I'm are you are right it. to be against it. <laughs> you are and you are correct. As, as Roman just said in the chat, that's right. Dale for naming the MCDM RPG. Yes. 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 And there's some proof in the pudding. Into the depths yeah, of MCDM. <laughs> no, I feel like it'll just be called like Monster Murder or something like that if Dale names it. Just like, you know, strong noun, wow. strong strong verb. No faith in me. <laughs> Monster, that's exactly what you just described. You're not wrong. Murder is a pretty good actionable noun. <laughs> Unicorn slaughter. <laughs> Woo! Let's do it. They've also talked uh, quests into the Infinite Staircase, uh, with his, which is an anthology of classic adventures. That's a pretty good uh, name. Brought back quests from the Infinite Staircase. You like that? I don't. I don't like the from, but I like quest and I like Infinite Staircase. Okay. I think quest <laughs> of the Infinite Staircase is a better name, but it might not describe what's going on. I feel like now you all need to write numbers from zero to nine on cards so that we can uh, get scores for each of these names as they get read out. I used yeah. to have that somewhere for ranking your um, segues. Oh, yeah, the Infinite Staircase dead. was an adventure from Planescape back in the day, and it is yet another so. way to move. It's another way to move in between the planes. So mm. surprised I didn't know that. From the Infinite Staircase makes logical mm-hmm. sense, if not. Uh, marketing sense yeah i, I know yeah. of the infinite staircase from web dm and that's literally uh, uh the <gasps> place where Secret, i've heard of it the infinite um, staircase but it, it seems cool uh, again c- going back and pulling back uh adventures from the history of the game similar to tales from the yawning portal uh is what they seem to suggest that would be uh, but with new secrets and new characters kind of sprinkled in there they had a character on screen that they refused to reveal the identity of um, so we will find out who that is, but apparently a new character, not a, a an old favorite. Uh, and then the Vecna Eye of Ruin. Actually, Ben, uh, it's Eve of Ruin. Sorry, you're right. I Get your Eves checked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that it's Eve of Ruin yeah. because I was about to give it some quippy uh, sub sub subtitle: Eye of Ruin, Hand of 
destruction or something. <laughs> um, Eve of Ruin uh, being a multiverse spanning adventure, revisiting places already appeared in 5e as well as places that uh, are yet to appear in 5e from D&D's history. This panel, you know, they didn't make a secret of it. It was 50 years of adventures, uh, 50 years of the hobby, uh, and so a lot of their products next year seem to be uh, themed around the past and the future, looking back and looking forward. Uh, are we looking forward to any of these in particular? The Vecna adventure sounds great. I mean, I like it. I, speaking of titles, I really like its title. The Vecna uh, is actually called Eye of Ruin, Hand of Destruction. What? Is it really? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> Of my brain melting out my eyes. Come on. No, I know. That's why I added that. uh... You thought that you just accidentally came up with the exact title? You said that before. (laughs) I did. Yeah. (laughs) This is all gone Um, wrong. um, No, you're you're far from the only person who's called it Eye of Ruin, though, Ben. I think probably because of the influence of the Eye of Vecna. Right. And the fact that a V looks a tremendous amount like a Y. I'll, I'll bet people will be calling it Eye of Ruin for years to come if this adventure is popular in any in any capacity. I hope Spleen it is. Spleen of trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> Hairpiece of despair. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm really curious about what this Vecna adventure is actually going to be, though, right? If Infinite Staircase is Planescape, and we know the Planescape is going to play a larger uh, scape role in the 2024 core books, then it sounds like they may be going all in on multiplanar stuff. And Vecna seems to be a good candidate for getting up to some multiplanar shenanigans. And then speaking of multiplanar shenanigans, uh, the player's handbook and the monster manual, uh, they did talk about the DMG as well, but that kind of bounced off me because it's the book I'm least interested in. Um, uh, Talking about the player's handbook, 48 subclasses, four subclasses for each class. So no more um, misbalance there. Although, I'm just realizing this now. Aren't there like 10 domains for the cleric in the 2014? So many. There's so many. So are they cutting back on domains? But also eight wizard schools. Yeah, there's only going to be four wizard schools from the eight in 2014. Wow. 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 (laughs) Yeah, okay. I hadn't, I literally, that did not click in my brain until right now. I had been thinking the opposite. I was like, oh, do we know who's getting the axe? Uh, no, I don't think they've said. I think they should they just said it for words. We should make up four right now. I we should make up like, four and give them different right. names. Right, like the saliva um, domain. I like it. I like yes. it a lot. <laughs> yeah, James. James, what what domain are you uh, you hoping for? Oh, the the eyeball domain. Mm-hmm. Obviously, <laughs> oh, it's great. Cool. Optically, cool. yeah. I'll go for woodworking. I'm gonna go for the YouTubers domain. <laughs> ah. uh, that's a that's a very very dark place we've the got SEO school of swirlies domain. and school of rock in chat nice she's a good one um nice. uh one thing that they kind of harped on about is the art refresh i mean the art that they've shown off looks really really beautiful mm-hmm. uh, they want to make sure every uh, class has a full page art, and then every subclass has art this time, so that you really n- get an idea in your head. That's of nice. What That's these subclasses nice. may stereotypically look like. Um, Here's the thing: when I saw the 2014 Player's Handbook, I was wowed by it being basically the most beautiful RPG book I'd ever seen. And these days, I think it looks a bit rinky-dink, and Wizards cannot afford that. 
Yeah, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, because like looking at old, like I look at the, I think I've got a fourth edition or it might be a third edition monster manual. I'm not sure, maybe a fourth, but I open that and there is art in there, but but none of it is like full page spread or anything. And it is so dense with text that I find it kind of impenetrable. Um, there's not a, like there are stat blocks, but they're not like, you know, nicely laid out and and defined as to where they exist on the page. Uh, they kind of all run together a little bit. So, um, yeah, I think going further down the readability path uh, is a good thing. You get if your you, money's worth with the art. Uh, if you look at any free league game, right? Any free league game or something coming out of there, those are some of those gorgeous game books you've ever seen. I think oh. Watsi wants to do something like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, for the background art, they have backgrounds uh was literally the 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 phrase they used they were like we for each background has an art piece but it's not it has no focus of it it's just a background um so that you can imagine that's where your character might have come from uh Hmm. which somebody online said looked like placeholder art um but thematically i like the the pun so sure when I uh, when I worked with Wizards on a project and I saw some of the art direction behind the curtain stuff, uh, they said that the most valuable type of artwork to them and the most highly praised type of artwork from the player base was uh, landscape illustrations, landscape right. and format, landscape and subject. And that's the sort of thing they're doing for the background art. And I think it's interesting that it's being criticized because... Uh, even as early as a year or two ago, th- that's what their reports said are the most well-liked pieces of art in their books. I suppose that's because, and and again, this goes to the philosophy of why they're doing background art for backgrounds. It's the least defined, you know, like when you see mm-hmm. a, a fighter, the artwork for the fighter, in many ways that defines what a fighter is in in folks' minds, even though that's not necessarily the intention for that to be uh, the only thing a fighter can be. And even with their subclass art, while I think it's fantastic to provide art for every subclass so that folks get an idea in their mind's eye of how the creators envisaged this thing, I also hope that that doesn't lead to players kind of feeling stuck in playing a subclass in a way that is reflective of that art. You know, I'm a, a huge fan of kind of using the mechanics but breaking the mold of what the the class actually suggesting it is taking a descriptivist approach to character design than a prescriptivist approach yes right you might just say uh every monster in the monster manual getting a tune-up uh so they will have the same cr but their stats will be uh increased uh to better live up to their cr uh an expanded npc section yes please i love npc stat blocks uh in my games um uh, and that's all I've got in my notes. Uh, the murder of the Tarasque would be a good adventure name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, speaking right. of speaking of murdering things, uh, they murdered the release dates they initially put out uh, for each of these books. <laughs> um, I was sitting at the panel, as I said. I checked my phone like five minutes before the end of the panel as it seemed like they were wrapping up and and looked at Twitter and there was an artwork there of the player's handbook fighter art that they'd shown off with a release date, uh, which was May 21st. And I remember passing my phone to Matt, who was sitting near me and and just saying, check the date. 
um, which I thought was interesting. That's a very early release date, but also very cool that we'll have these books kind of earlier in the year. But it was not to be, uh, as it seems like someone either jumped the gun or published the wrong art or some such, uh, and those release dates were promptly deleted, uh, never to be seen again at time of recording. How long did it take between posting and removal? Do we know? To my memory, like minutes, like Ooh. five, ten minutes. But I think I read in an article it might have been closer to hours. So maybe I just couldn't find it when I went looking for it again. That's very funny. And luckily, once something's on the internet, you can take it down very easily. And no one will have noticed. It's fine. You never know. You never know. It's not like they're going to talk about it on all the news podcasts. I mean, calm down. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, I think they've mentioned... Uh, actually, I don't know if they have, but they, uh, so I don't want to speculate wildly, um, but they may would be early from, from, especially as we just had our last playtest packet and they've got to finalize the rules that they want to do, go through that playtest feedback and then lock text before it goes to printing to print all these books that, that don't have enough printers for famously reported earlier in the year. Um, so may, I'm not surprised if that date has been shifted a little bit later in the year. May would be great. Uh, honestly, earlier, the better, uh, uh, from a fan perspective, but we shall see. Speaking of being a fan, Baldur's Gate 3 sweeps the game awards, uh, winning game of the year, best RPG, best multiplayer, best community support, best performance by Neil Newborn, uh, who played Astarian and uh players voice award which was voted on by the public did anybody watch the game awards this is a great no. topic ben but let's wrap it up <laughs> yeah that's that's what i wanted to talk about too james um there's a, a really great youtube video by uh burback um is a youtube channel eddie burback's like alt channel with his brother where they go through probably a deeper dive into the history of the video game awards than you'd necessarily want uh, and kind of ends on a positive note to where the Game Awards ended up last year. I feel like the end of that video would end differently if they had seen the Game Awards this year. Um, just because award ceremonies are always caught between needing to make sense financially to put on this big party, but also celebrate the thing they're there to celebrate. Uh, and poor Neil Newborn, who was, uh, you know, making a statement about how Baldur's Gate has reached so many people of so many different identities who didn't feel seen before while music played over the top of him and Please Wrap It Up was on the teleprompter is a little heartbreaking. Neil Newborn was going to quit acting uh, if, uh, you know, he, he got that job right when he was at his breaking point. And mm. like for him to rock it, to this level of recognition and success right you know from his darkest moment to the highest apex is such a beautiful sort of protagonistic moment that yeah to to see people who seem more interested in corporate advertising than giving the people who make these games their flowers at an event ostensibly all about giving them their flowers it just seems sad yeah yeah and it makes you think as well of like, I mean, I, I don't mean to give the impression that the Oscars are perfect by any means, <laughs> but it, it, you know, you do get this template from the Oscars where it's like they pick and choose. They're like, all right, we're going to allot more time for these categories to give their speeches because that, yeah, they've got their corporate sponsors. They got to make their ad breaks. They got to make their time. 
but also we know that people are going to want to hear this person speak. Mm-hmm. Um, whether their choices are, you know, perfect or imperfect or whatever, but it does mean that you don't cut off Kehe Kwan in the middle of his beautiful emotional speech. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, I, I don't know. Logistics just, do better. <laughs> yeah, it just, it makes it, it like, you know, you understand that the, and the VGAs, the Spike Video Game Awards, Oh, if you want to go down a road, again, that Burback video, if you want to go down a road of like um, sickeningly offensive uh, material from the, the video game awards of the past, they're not even comparable to, to the Keeley awards of, of present day. Um, but it is just what's good. So, so I understand the need for, you know, corporate sponsorship. I understand the need for video game trailers. It's actually fun that the video game awards are also an opportunity to learn about what's coming next year mm-hmm. uh, and seeing those trailers. But, and, you know, I'm sort of speaking a little bit off the cuff here, but from my understanding, is a dog getting murdered in the background somewhere? Um, yeah, yeah. It's a, downstairs in my apartment, it sounds like. Okay, cool. Just double checking. Please murder your dogs silently. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dante, Dante. Oh, if I was unpopular before. It's, um, it, it, listen, it's just the abattoir downstairs. <laughs> it happens all the time. Um, uh, yeah, my understanding is that like eight minutes was given to... Hideo Kojima to come out and talk about a game in the most vague terms that uh, has not even really been fully announced yet. Its name is as uncertain as the MCDM RPG. It's just a collection of letters. Um, and uh, that was given more airtime uh, at the award ceremony than, than actually celebrating those who won this year individually is a little bit. And you got to think as well because a big part of this comes down to the deci- the decision to broadcast the awards. Because mm. you know, there are lots of industries that have their awards nights, you know, your dentistry awards night or whatever that we don't broadcast because it's not that interesting. Sure. We're dealing with an industry that is really on the border between people being interested and wanting to pay attention to it and then wanting to broadcast and feed into that, but also not necessarily being able to afford them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you got to think that maybe if they didn't broadcast it live, like if you, if you just let people like post about it online, I think that um, maybe you could get away with giving people the time that they deserve and not having to be so beholden to ads. Maybe it'd be worthwhile. Just get pretty pictures. Have a have a nice social media team posting on all the socials. And yet, video games as an industry makes more money annually than Hollywood. I know. Which is why it's so strange that video games seem so insecure about uh, yeah you know, its legitimacy as a as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. May, maybe in some ways, I'm sort of just parroting you know things that I've read online about uh, what folks have mentioned, but it it, it rings true. Having like. Timothée Chalamet just rock up out of nowhere and just be like, oh, yeah, um, here's this game award. And just be like, all right, thanks, Tim. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what was what the video game were you in? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's um, the distribution of where all the earnings go to. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor Al Pacino forced to stand through eight minutes of Kratos' speech last year. Um, I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, that was great. But it was honestly, it was great to see. Um, I'm so sorry, I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but it was so great to see uh, Kratos come back to give the award uh, to Neil for this year. That was, you know, if nothing else, a, a great moment to to see how video games are elevating themselves um, into the art form that they've always been. Well-deserved anyway. winnings. All round. 
speaking of things uh, that are not well-deserved, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is going to be, I'm so sorry, this is going to be a little bit of a breakneck segue here or a breakneck in tone. Um, and this is breaking news, so I am not uh, in and out of the nuances of this, so I apologize. Uh, but uh, it is just being reported Hasbro laying off employees mm. uh, in an SEC filing um, up to, they've already laid off 800, uh, and it looks like they may be laying off another 1,000 employees. Um, it's a bad day for toys, a bad year for toys. People aren't buying plastic toys in the way they once were. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I have a lot more to, to – because you're right, sorry, just quickly, James, to into what you were saying, is that Hasbro's earnings as a company were down despite D&D's earnings being higher in the third quarter, which is a shame, um, but I don't know that I really want to comment too much on the particulars of this except to say that hopefully those people – uh, land safely. Uh, and- yeah, I do briefly want to comment because there's been a lot of layoffs in um, broader gaming as well. Oh, it's been Armageddon so in video games. And yeah. yeah, and it's it always seems to happen just before Christmas. I mean, it happens plenty of other times too, but you know, it's it's particularly hard. Uh, that it hits people right before the holidays and it's yeah. j- it just sucks to see. Yes. So, uh, you know, best of luck uh, and well wishes to anybody affected by those layoffs. Kind of hard to come back from that uh, to a <laughs> listener email. Um, maybe we just pinch it off there for this week. <laughs> yeah. If you want an awards ceremony that doesn't suck, <laughs> see, I'm good, I'm, I've got the segue, and you can join us next week. <laughs> Can I do the outro? <laughs> I don't know how to do the outro. I'm no, take it away. I'm so out of my depth. <laughs> wait, wait. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. Okay. Um, if you if you want an awards ceremony that's good, you should join us uh, next week for the Ellie's, the Eldritch Lawcast Awards uh, for Excellence in 2023. Um, and that will be. Are we doing the thing that we did last time, where it's it's we were okay, we recorded it before this, but it might be um, streamed at the regular time next week, which is let me see if I guys is four p.m. Uh, East Coast. It's uh, what time are you seven seven p.m. something like that. Uh, West Coast six six. Okay, great. Give me the dates. Uh, <laughs> 3 p.m. West Coast, USA on Monday, 7 p.m. East Coast, or 6, or, uh, 6, 6 p.m. East Coast, if USA I'm on Monday. If I how the time works, I might have been okay. But no, thank you. This is such a disaster. Tuesday. We can't even. <laughs> 10 a.m. Yeah, Tuesday. Yeah. You're, you're, you're both scrapped. Eastern. Sean, take over. <laughs> I have been Ben Byrne here <laughs> with James Hake, Bill Kingsmill, and some other guy. We Don't will see when. you next time. Enjoy your holidays, everyone. <laughs> Merry happy. Fifty more seconds. Fifty more seconds of vamping. <laughs> <laughs>